0: Happy Palm Sunday to you, church family. It's so good to be back together and to be looking at God's Word together. T- today we continue uh, our series entitled Jesus Is. And in keeping with the significance of today, uh, we're looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. And our sermon is entitled Hosanna in the Highest. That's a complete ripoff and plagiaristic Take from the passage, as you're going to see, Hosanna in the highest. And we're going to be looking at Matthew's account of this. this. There's an account of this in all four of the Gospels, but Matthew's account is what we're looking at today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Open it, scroll to it, flip open however it is. It'll also be up here on the screen. And, uh, and as we read through this passage, I want to highlight three things for us today. This is this, There's complete spoilers. We put it out on the version app and everything this morning, so you, you should... Uh, should know where we're going. Our three overarching points are this, that one, Jesus was intentional, that Jesus had an intentionality in everything that he did as we we look at this passage. Secondly, we're going to look at the crowd's response versus the disciples' response to Jesus' instructions, his commands, and who he is. And finally, we're going to ask the question, what do you and I do with Jesus? Who do we say that He is? What does our submission to His kingship look like? And so it's pretty straightforward today, uh, but my prayer is that in in this simple message, that uh, as we look at the passage, that we're deeply convicted, and as a result, that we're changed. So let's read our passage together. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, starting in verse 1, it says this, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered in Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Man, thanks be to God for the reading of his word today Uh as a boy growing up in the States, in, in the southern part of America, where, I, where I'm from, in the 80s, I almost hesitate to say that, uh, there was the sport that every kid, and specific, specifically every boy, grew up playing was baseball in that time, in, my, in the area where I'm from. I mean, regardless of talent, <laughs> regardless of ability, Many times, regardless of desire, <laughs> you were going to play this, this, this sport. And so uh, I remember those early days of learning how to play this game. And, and my dad and I, him, him teaching me kind of the, the basics of, of how to throw a ball. And we worked on, I mean, everything from from throwing motion to to release points and to to uh, the, the use of the wrist, so following through with your body, all the things that it takes. Because it, it meant the difference between the ball hitting the exact spot that you were aiming for or losing control. It meant throwing the, diff- the difference between throwing the ball with power or. And having no power whatsoever. And I imagine that's, that's true of any sport or really any discipline that you set out to master, that fundamentals are the key. Uh, this, this week I sat down for coffee with a friend, and we were talking about the struggle to learn how to play piano. And the difficulty of playing with p- the piano oftentimes rests in whether or not you've learned the fundamentals. You don't just dive in playing Mozart on day one or Beethoven, or whoever you wanna play. uh, Oftentimes, getting better in an instrument like the piano is as simple as going back to refresh that muscle memory of knowing the scales, knowing the basics, knowing that, that the fundamental things, going back to the basics. And we never truly outgrow or get away from the fundamentals. The difficulty comes in the practicing of the fundamentals because it's not fun. It's not always fun. It's not glamorous. It's not the kind of thing that wakes you up in the morning. That I just want to go back to the absolute basics of the the, the routine and the rhythm. But it's necessary. If you've had much history with Christianity and the church, you will be familiar with this passage. You may have even read this many times before. Uh, today marks the anniversary of this actual passage of what we read, of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and seeing all the things that we just saw there. And this story and its application is one of the fundamentals. It's less than an application, though simple, is one that we have to revisit time and time again. And as you consider the life of Jesus, this is such an interesting passage. Um, it marks the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. But, but one thing we can be sure about in this passage, and this is our first main point, is that Jesus was very intentional about every single thing he did. I mean, it's true of his whole life and ministry, but we're going to see specifically here in this passage. and the chapters that precede what we read this morning, we see that Jesus has a determination about him as he begins to turn his focus towards going to Jerusalem, towards the end. Uh, you, you see the momentum begin to pick up even a few chapters before this, and it all culminates as Jesus and his disciples reach the, reach the edge of Jerusalem in this, in this chapter. And as they arrive on the outskirts of the city, Jesus stops. And John's gospel, it it, it helps us to know just how intentional this is because in John 12, we learn that Jesus hadn't been on a long journey and stopped on the edge to rest. No, he's been in Bethany, which is a mile at most from this spot where they stopped. So Jesus isn't stopping because he's tired. He's very pur- purposeful in stopping short of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and then he sends the disciples in to, get the, to collect the donkey. Let's reread that, the first three verses there, 1 to 3. It says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord has, needs them, and he will send them at once. Notice Jesus intentionally doesn't go with them. He sends them ahead of him. He doesn't enter the city until they return. And he's extremely deliberate about everything he does here, including sending the disciples to one specific place. He doesn't say, hey, go find any animal you can find that I could ride and bring it back here. Whatever you find is good. No, he tells them exactly what to find, where to go, where to find it, and gives them very clear instructions And we find out in the very next verse, in verse 4, that this was done to fulfill prophecy. As we're gonna see, the whole point of all of this intentionality comes down to obedience. Jesus being obedient to what the Father had called him to be about. Jesus was being obedient to the Father by fulfilling what the prophet Zechariah had written almost 500 years. (laughs) Let me say that again. Jesus was being obedient to fulfill a prophecy that was written 500 years before Jesus lived. And then we see that everything he very purposefully does in the rest of the passage was for the sake of announcing who he actually was, the king, the Messiah, the rescuer sent from God to make a way for us, humanity, to be restored in relationship with God. And so Jesus makes this grand announcement, I am the king, not through his words, but through action, through everything that he does, through fulfilling prophecy. And, and to you and me, reading this passage, it might seem like a veiled reference at best, but to the average Jewish person who had been hearing these stories, who had been reading the Old Testament that we have today, who, who had, been, had grown up in this culture of, of hearing the prophecies, hearing the stories, hearing about the promised Messiah, longing for his return, all their whole lives, many of them had, had made a long pilgrimage to this to this city, things clicked instantly for them. They knew exactly what they were witnessing. They knew exactly what Jesus was communicating through every action that He did. There's no misunderstanding what Jesus was saying. And we're going to see in just a minute that they clearly understood all of this based on their response. So let's take a minute. Let's break all this down to see, uh, to see it as clearly as they did, and hopefully a little more clearly than they did. And to do that, let's, let's read verses 4 and 5. It says, This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew does something for us. He helps us out. He, he's so kind. He connects the dots here for us that, that none of the other gospel writers do. He points us back to the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah to a prophecy about the promised Messiah that was to come. And Jesus could have announced his kingship in a more glorious manner, to be fair. I mean, he could have. If he wanted to broadcast it, he could have just said, hired out billboards. I don't know. He could have He could have done a whole lot of things. He could have gotten the disciples to find the most majestic looking horse out there and him ride, and, and you know, having the posture of power and glory, but he very deliberately chooses a donkey. And before you're tempted to think maybe this whole thing is a misunderstanding and people are reading way too much into this, let's keep in mind that uh, traveling by foot would have been the norm by far. In fact, this is the only reference, that this passage and the, and the others in the gospel, the, is the only reference we have of Jesus' whole life of him doing anything but walking, <laughs> this one moment. And so the other gospel writers not only note that it's not only the cult, but again, Matt, Matthew gives an extra detail here to help us understand a little more of the scene. We see that not only did the, did the disciples bring the cult, but they also brought the cult's mother. The prophecy communicates that the cult will be unbroken. It, it will have never been ridden before. Yet the Messiah is going to ride in on, on this donkey. And, and one sure way to calm an unbroken colt is to have its mother traveling alongside it. And I love that. This is a small detail that Matthew includes just to reinforce the fact that this was indeed an unbroken colt. Keep reading the next two verses with me. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and then they laid their clothes on them. And he sat on them, the, the clothes, not both donkeys, by the way. Uh, Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy to be, the king of, uh, to be the king of peace. Look there in verse 5. It says the prophecy phrases it that your king is coming to you gentle, gentle and mounted on a donkey. That's what it's using to describe who Jesus is. He's gentle. Jesus was emphasizing his role to come and make peace. He began that peacemaker work in this moment as he announces very very clearly his identity as this king. See, Jesus wasn't just a good person. He wasn't just a prophet like these people attribute the title to. Jesus, we learn from scripture, has always been, existed eternally with God, as God. And, and Jesus willingly takes on flesh and becomes one of us while remaining fully God. It's something that Our lives, our whole lives, we will never fully comprehend. It's one of those things that we trust what this says, even though we can't fully wrap our finite brains around this concept. Jesus walked the earth. He laid aside his rights that he had so that he could live not like one of us, but as one of us, fully man, fully God. And in doing that, he became the perfect intermediary between two warring parties, God and humanity. He became the perfect go-between between between these two parties who were in conflict and separated from one another. See, every single one of us has chosen to willfully, uh, deliberately go against God's way and go our own way. We've chosen to do what the Bible calls sin, to rebel against God. All of us have. And this rebellion has brought separation from God. So Jesus is living as fully God and fully man and then dying a death he didn't deserve. It paved a way for you and me to be made right with God. Jesus truly is the king of peace, the peacemaker. And he does a couple of other things here in this passage to make this announcement. He, as he gives instructions to the disciples to go and get the cult, he tells them this in verse 3. He says, If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Jesus refers to himself as Lord. This is the only place in Matthew's gospel where this word is used. And Jesus uses it to describe himself. Later, as he's riding into town, not once does he tell the people to stop calling him the titles that they're calling him. He doesn't say, calm down. You're getting a little too carried away here. Let's not go too far. No, he, he doesn't stop them. He doesn't silence them. He just, he, he takes it on. As we're going to see in a moment, they're, they're calling out titles that were attributed only to the Messiah, and Jesus doesn't rebuff them. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't even flinch in the midst of them calling these things. I read this week that the historian Josephus, who was not a believer, by the way, so no, there's no bent or slant here, he noted that the crowds would have numbered about 3 million at this point. 3 million people. All coming together. So imagine the literal multitudes lining the street, laying down their robes for Jesus to ride on. They're waving the national symbol of the palm branch and laying them down before him to ride over. As Stan Toussaint put it in his commentary on Matthew, every outward indication of this scene pointed to the entrance of a king into Jerusalem. There was, there's no mistake of what's happening here. Through Jesus' actions and lack of correction, we're seeing a picture that he was broadcasting very publicly exactly who he truly is. In fact, a few verses of our passage, later after our passage, Jesus finds himself in the temple, and children are calling out these same things that the crowd had been saying. And this time, the religious leaders here, I mean, they, they have an opportunity to confront him about it. In verse 15, it says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, And and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You've prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Jesus had no intention of deflecting, rebuffing these claims. This day was completely about announcing publicly who he is. When questioned by these high priests, Jesus doesn't avoid shying away from the title of Messiah. He doesn't keep silent. He doesn't avoid it. There's no ambiguity ambiguity here. Everything on this day is setting events in motion that would ultimately lead to securing peace for us by leading leading him to the cross and then to the tomb. There was purpose in everything he did. Hear me when I say that. There's purpose in everything Jesus did there. And the point is that this moment is no different from any other. That didn't stop on this day. Jesus is deliberate in everything he does in every stage of his ministry, and he continues to act with purpose even today in your life and in my life. Whether you or I recognize it or not, he acts with purpose in our lives, just like he did in every detail of this day, this, that first Palm Sunday. He's in charge. He's the Lord and there is no other. He has purposely allowed you to be in the season of life that you're in right now. Whether you like that or not, no matter how difficult or how amazing that may be, so that he can be made much of. He has purposely placed you here in this place today, not to hear me preach, but for you to interact with this passage and have to answer that question like the the crowds do. Who is this guy? Who is he? You have to answer that today. Who is he in your life? This morning, Jesus has all we Jesus presents this fact that he has always been and always will be intentional in how he acts, especially when it comes to revealing and making much of his own glory. So Jesus was intentional. Second, what we can observe from the reactions from the disciples versus the crowds. Who met him? Uh, Look back to the beginning of the passage and read one more time verses one to three. This is this is really interesting. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, "Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt. Untie them and bring them to me." If anyone says, "I'm just," I'm sorry, I get so I'm just trying to picture the disciples' faces as they're hearing this. Go into this village. You're going to find a donkey. Untie it, bring it to me. You know, are they nodding? Are they what's their what's their facial expressions look like? You know, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and He will send them at once. In school, I, I was not very good at maths. I I struggled. I was I was far from good at it. The only thing that got me through was that I knew how to follow literal directions. And so I could follow the the teacher's instructions to know, well, in this part of the equation, you put this number in. And this part of the equation, you do this function, and it's going to spit out an answer. I had no idea or concept of why all these things happen. I just knew that if I followed the instructions, I could get through the class. That was my goal, get through the, get through the class, the coursework. Uh, but there was never an understanding of why things happened. What did the equation, why did it work? What does it mean? You know? And so John 12, 12 tells us that these disciples, they followed the literal instructions of Jesus. But they had no concept of what's happening until afterwards, after Jesus has come back from the the grave. Then they were like, oh, we get it. But in this moment, they didn't understand what's going on. They just had a set of instructions here. In the face of, of uncertainty, though, they were obedient. They obeyed Jesus. They obeyed Jesus even though the instructions had the potential to be odd to them. Though it's, it's very possible they had grown accustomed to Jesus giving them random instructions that weren't, com- that weren't comfortable. I mean, maybe he did this a lot to them, put them in uncomfortable situations. We know that he did. Hey, you're going to go out two by two, by the way, to all these villages. Okay, Jesus, you're giving us money? Nope. In fact, only take the clothes you're on your back. Don't take anything with you. Don't speak to anyone until you get there. Just, you know, the Lord will provide. You know, he gave instructions like this all the time. So, you know, it's uncomfortable. But think about this. They were just going to walk to a spot and find a donkey tied up. They're going to untie the donkey and walk back. Can you imagine that? Let's let's translate. All right, so Jesus in in 21st century says, okay, you're going to go and there's going to be a car parked on the side of the street. And you're going to get in the car. I know it's not your car, but that's okay. You're going to get in the car. You're going to drive away and come back to this spot. Does that, does that sound really odd? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd be comfortable with that. Lord, do you mean I'm supposed to steal the car? But Jesus said, it's okay, I'm going to give you instructions. If they ask, just say the Lord needs it. Okay. And it worked. It worked. We find out from John 12, that's exactly what happens. They did that. They said, by the way, the Lord needs it. Okay, you're good to go. And it worked. Mark, Mark 11 tells us that. Luke 19 tells us that. Jesus gave them the answers, and it it worked. These two disciples who remain unnamed in all of the gospel accounts were completely obedient. There's no indication of hesitancy on their part. There's no description of reluctance, asking clarifying questions. But what about this or this or that? They just were obedient. They followed the instructions exactly as they were given to them. And in doing that, they had the privilege of helping to fulfill that prophecy that we saw in verse 4. They got to be part of that story. They got to be part of the story of God making much of himself there. There's no telling where obedience is going to lead you. But because we can be sure that Jesus is purposeful in the places he leads us, we can be sure that we will be secure and have just enough of what we need, enough of the answers that we need, enough of the light to see the next step, enough information to follow through in the next step. God will give us what we need. But are you willing to obey like this? Are you currently obeying like this? Are you listening to the instructions, even if you don't understand the why behind them? the disciples. Look at at how the crowd responds to Jesus. Look at verses 8 to 11. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. John's gospel, again, fills in a little more background. Here John 12 says in verse 12, The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And skipping down a few verses to verse 17, it says, Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify... This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. So we see here that there are two groups that merged into one large crowd as Jesus rode into the city. One group was made up of the residents of Jerusalem or the other pilgrims who would come to celebrate the Passover there. And this explains a bit of why you see these two. Part of the crowd saying, who is this? And part of the crowd, part of them had, had seen firsthand who Jesus is. And part of them are just like, this is a crazy uproar coming. Who is this guy right into town? So you have these questions back and forth with the crowd and the city is just kind of turned upside down. And this response from the crowd is really interesting. On one hand, they're they're giving Jesus the exact welcome that he deserves. That's what it looks like. They're I mean they're they're totally declaring their submission to the king here. So in that sense, they're fulfilling what we saw in that prophecy from Zechariah, and that's what Scripture calls for all of us to do, to submit to Christ. He's the sovereign ruler over all things. The call from the Bible is for all of us to conform our lives to, the, to his ways and to make him king of our lives. But in a true, pure monarchy, allegiance to a king isn't a partial thing. It's a total thing. It's a a holistic thing. Allegiance to the king has to be unified, complete. And outwardly, we see some initial evidence that this is what the people are doing. They've laid down their robes in the street for Jesus to ride over. They've, They've signaled by doing this that they're confessing that he is their king. You don't just do that for people. <laughs> Normally, you do that for royalty. We, we just read in John's gospel where not only did they lay down the branches of palm trees, the, those palm fronds, but, but they went out to meet Jesus with these palm fronds, meaning they welcomed Jesus by waving them. And, and that's how you would greet a king in this city. In Leviticus 23, palm branches were to be used as part of one of the other feasts in, of worship. But by Jesus' day, this practice had also merged with their politics to become the symbol of Jewish nationalism. So from the outside, it looks like there's submission and allegiance to a new king. But when we dig a little deeper, we find that their submission was conditional. When we dig a little deeper, we find that their loyalty only went so far. Their loyalty to Jesus is rooted in their expectation of what what they thought he should do. And that differed from the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. There, there's a few clues to this as, as well as the actions we see after this moment. From the text, it seems that the people are expecting a political ruler uh, to, to deliver them from Roman oppression. And this is why they're waving this symbol of national identity, the palm branches. It's why in Mark's gospel, Mark 11, he also records this, that they said, blessed is the, is the coming kingdom of our father David by using this phrase, they're calling back to messianic prophecies being, you know, being from the line of David. And this, this title calls back to God's covenant with David to, to have a future heir who would establish his throne forever. It's calling back to the prospect of political flourishing. And it's why they're calling out, blessed is the king of Israel. The crowds were so excited to see a king. I mean, they are absolute buzzing. They're eager to pledge their loyalty to him, but only because they thought, they were going to get political gain out of it. They're going to get freedom out of it. Their political and cultural expectations had merged with how they read the Scriptures. Though all the prophecies about the Messiah took place long before the Roman occupation, they came to see it through the lens of, we just need the Messiah to deliver us from Rome. So the people's cry of Hosanna literally means, save us, oh save us, or Lord save us. And it's taken from Psalm 118, directly from the word, And it's one that's associated with the Messiah. But notice that they aren't calling out the other prophecies. Where's where's the the suffering servant prophecy that they're calling out here? Where's the other prophecies of of the humble leader? None of that's to be found. They're just calling out this one about the Messiah, the king that they want. This psalm would have been one that every person was familiar with in this city. It's the last psalm that was sung in several Jewish feast holidays, including the Passover. So that means the night that Jesus is betrayed, they would have been around the table taking the Passover and they would have sung this psalm together. (laughs) That's amazing. Let's be clear for a moment. Wanting liberation from political oppression and injustice is not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. It's a good desire. Wanting justice, wanting freedom is a good pursuit. But taking the scriptures and making the Messiah's central point to be about the ta- this task is a complete misunderstanding of the true need we all have for a Messiah, the need for freedom first and foremost from our sin and our rebellion against God. So the people waited throughout the week. Jesus didn't raise an army. They kept waiting. He made no political maneuvers. They kept waiting. He, did, he made no political outcries, no campaign speeches. What's going on here? He didn't do the things that we're expecting the king to do. They're expecting this messianic warrior, this, this leader, this, pol- this politician to rise up and deliver them. He didn't meet their expectations. And it's why just a few days later we see the same very crowd turn and follow the religious leaders and cry out, crucify him. Jesus wasn't actually the king they wanted after all. That brings us to the, kind of the, closing, the closing of our time this morning. And it's just the question of what about us? Is Jesus our king? Is he your king? Meaning, what will you and I do with Jesus? Any true king requires the complete submission of those they reign over. So what does our submission to his kingship look like? Are you and I like those disciples who obeyed that we saw without question and followed through and didn't even have the full picture of what's going on? Or do we resemble the crowds who profess submission to the king only to discover that submission actually comes with a set of conditions? I'll submit, but, oh, sovereign king, here are my conditions for submission. Based on these circumstances, this is when I submit to the king. We all need to continually keep coming back to the fundamentals. We have to keep coming back to the foundational basic principles like submission to Christ is not conditional. It's complete. It's total. It's not something that's done superficially. It's a blanket submission. Sadly, you and I can be just like the crowd on any given day. We all can. Man, I know my heart. I so can be like this crowd on any given day. When things don't go our way, we turn, we blame God. We run away from him instead of towards him. We say we submit, but we withhold, we withhold portions of our lives. I'll submit everything but that right there. We, we section off our life into boxes. And these boxes, yes, yes Lord, you, you can have these boxes right here. But my, like this box, my hopes and my dreams for the future, those are, those are, are mine, Lord. These, all, everything else, but we do that so often and frequently. God, you can have it all except for mm, that. We can grow angry with him when he doesn't move the way we expect him to move. And, and none of that means our circumstances are, are, we are okay, I, that they aren't painful for, that we shouldn't be disappointed with, with how things go in life. But our, does our submission to God rest upon what we think he should or shouldn't do in any given situation? Before I, I go to this final thought this morning as I close, I want to say one thing. And that's that I love you. I love you. But there's been a theme I've encountered a lot lately. It's something that Mark and Paul and I have spent a lot of time praying through for you. It's the theme of isolation, and it is a killer in the church. It will kill your life in Christ. I've heard it from multiple people in our church in a variety of ways and situations. Our tendency so often is to isolate from the local church when things get hard instead of doing what the Scripture calls us to do, which is to press into local church. Submission to Christ means that we surrender even when we are personally struggling, especially when we're personally struggling. A few years ago in my job, our whole team, and there's a couple people in here who went through this with me, our whole team went through a personality profile on steroids and, uh, and this, this thing was not supposed to just to detect how introverted or extroverted you were or what your strengths and weaknesses were, but it was also sp- supposed to detect like stress behaviors you're prone to when like, your needs aren't being met. And I'm like, never in a million years will this thing ever be close to being accurate. But I got the report back. I filled out the questionnaire. I got the report back. <laughs> and this thing read me like a book. like. So much of all the gory details of my life could be explained because of all these tendencies I have in my life to my absolute horror and shame. It said things like, yes, I'm going to go there. Yes, it said things like when my social needs aren't met and I'm not interacting with others in a way that my personality needs, then I can exhibit tendencies like social anxiety or avoidance of close personal ties that I, I avoid. When I'm not in a work environment that utilizes my strengths or lets me uh, has the right conditions for me to, to just to, to be about the things I'm passionate about, I can withdraw and I can avoid decisions, a.k.a. procrastinate. Um, so those in the room that know me well and are familiar with those struggles in my life also know I work so hard to overcome that and not to give in to those things. I may be prone to those things, but they, they don't define me. They don't, they're just not who I have to be. And so because of those two things this morning, I want to tell you this, that one, I love you. And two, because I love you, as someone who can fall prey to those things, surrendering to Jesus means using the community that he has given you, that he has designated as the means for us to grow and gain strength at the local church. When you get offended by others, don't walk away. Don't walk away. I, I know it seems like the easy fix, but it's actually the exact opposite of what will be good for you, much less what God calls for us to do in His Word. God's design for you and for me in these instances is to be courageous enough to allow others to walk with us in our difficulty. It's why over and over again you see so many passages across the New Testament about how the local church should love one another, walk with one another, labor with one another in love, think of others more important than yourselves show kindness, show compassion, show patience over and over and over again. If you find that that's where you are today, struggling with isolating from the rest of the church family, fight against that magnetic pull away from church and press into community. If you've been hurt or offended, man, don't ghost the church or specific members in the church. Don't leave. Honor our king and do what may be uncomfortable in the temporary, but will lead to health a deep sense of peace, and even more importantly, exaltation of Christ in the long term. Talk about it with others. Submission to Christ is one of the most fundamental foundational principles of the Christian life. It's the expectation for every single person who calls himself a follower of Jesus. And it's not just for the circumstances and isolation and offense. It's for every single one of us to ponder today, am I really submitting to Christ the way I ought to be? Am I submitting to Christ what he wants over what I want? Over what my comfort wants? What my preferences want? What my ever-changing feelings want? Over what my culture wants? My church history, my traditions, what they want? Surrendering to Christ is submit to the call to die to self so that we can grow to be more and more like him. We've already seen that Jesus is purposeful. He's purposefully calling you into deeper level of submission if you've ever made Jesus, never made Jesus king of your life, there invitation is on the table for you to enter into a relationship with him today. Will you answer that call? If you'll seek him in his word together with the local church, he will both reveal places where you're not submitting as you should, as well as the places where he's asking for deeper submission. And maybe you're saying this morning, that's actually the last thing I want. It sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds like it's oppressive and not freedom. Let me just tell you, Jesus promises that actually if we take his yoke, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. There's actually more freedom to be found in Christ than outside of Christ. There's more joy than we could ever imagine in Christ than outside of Christ. And in the fellowship of his design of the local church, he will lead you to be more like him, which leads to happiness. Not because things are always to be good, but because we'll be understanding God's ways and tapping into the one who is the ultimate source of satisfaction and strength. So today we're going to respond in song. And as we sing, this is a moment to confess where you are before the Lord. It's a moment to praise Jesus for being our king. It's a moment to go to our brother and sister and talk about offense or heartache. It's a moment to get prayer. If you need prayer for something this morning, we would love to do that for you. And if you're pondering what it looks like to follow Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that. See us during the coffee time afterwards. Love to have a conversation about that. Jesus is the King. Will you submit to Him? Hosanna in the highest. Father, thank you. We need you. We just that that cry is our cry today, that Hosanna in the highest, Lord, save us. God in the highest, save us. We need you. Grant us the mercy we need to seek out submission in a way that brings freedom. Help us today by your Spirit. Only you can help us do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.